We've been going through um, Matthew's Gospel, and we're into the part of the Bible which um, is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is Jesus' kind of rallying call to follow Him into the kingdom. Um, so He's been saying, repent and kind of return away from your sins and follow me. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' law. It's Jesus' outline of what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And this is what you must be like, and this is what you must do. So the Sermon on the Mount, actually, if you read it through, is just incredibly difficult. Uh, if you try to actually live it out day by day and minute by minute, um, it will push you to the extreme of your righteousness and your ability to obey. And that's kind of the point. The Sermon on the Mount functions in a way to show us the incredibly high standards of the Christian community and kingdom and then leaves us going, but I can't do it. Uh, and which then leads us back to Christ, which is how the whole of Christianity works. It's not a do your best and you, then you get graded at the end religion. It's a, I'm really bad, help me. Um, you become forgiven of your sins. But then, once you're forgiven, you live a totally different life. Uh, and so Jesus is outlining what that totally different life looks like. And we've seen that it's an upside-down kingdom. You know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. And those type of people, they're the ones that will be blessed. They're the ones that will inherit the earth rather than those who live and represent themselves, who push to the front, who knock everyone else down. And although they may have worldly success, they won't have eternal success. Then Jesus looks at his followers and says, Okay, if this is who you are to enter into my kingdom, now as you live in that type of light, this is what you're going to be. You're going to be salt. That means you're going to be kind of preserving the rot and getting rid of the rot in society and being distinct. And you are the light. If you live like one of my citizens of the kingdom, you will shine my light out into the world. And after all that, we come now to the kind of the most crucial three verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount hangs on these three verses and their interpretation. Uh, and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is actually just an explanation and illustration of these three verses. Um, and it's these three verses in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, or four verses, I guess, um, are an explanation of how Christians or how followers of Jesus are meant to relate to the laws of God. Uh, and then Jesus is going to outline exactly what that looks like. So let us read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, I, I'm the kind of weird person that really loves movie trailers. Uh, you know, sometimes people go to the cinemas and they wait until like the, they know the ads and the trailers are done. They come in and they just want to watch the movie. I'm the kind of person that gets there early and wants to see the screen open up and watch all the trailers and the ads and I kind of just like the experience. In fact, weekly, on a weekly basis, I'll go to my iTunes store and look and watch new trailers and kind of, kind of, you kind of get the whole movie just within three minutes. It's awesome. Um, and when I was studying in the pastor's college, it was one of the times when they were releasing one of those Star Wars films. And so the trailer comes out and there was all the, I can't even remember which one it was for, but there was all the fanfare and everything. Everyone was excited about it. And as you watch the, the trailer, they're giving all these hints and these kind of shadows of what might come up in the future Star Wars film. And so as you're watching the trailer, the, the diehard Star Wars nerds who told me that Star Wars is not science fiction, it's space fantasy. So if you didn't know that, that's for free. <laughs> I thought it was science fiction, but apparently it's space fantasy and there's a difference, a really important difference. Um, shout out to Joshua Pinnell if you're watching. Um, and, and so in this trailer, this space fantasy trailer, they were kind of hinting at who, what's going to happen and who's going to die and who the major characters are going to be and who, you know, all that type of stuff and all these theories are going around on the internet about what it's going to be um, and you know, debating ideas and even in class we were meant to be studying theology but we got into these long Star Wars debates because two guys really cared about it and they were arguing from the trailer what would be the reality, etc. And then finally the movie comes out and you can go see whichever one it was. I can't remember. It was in 2017, so whichever one that was. And all is revealed as you watch the film and all the theories get debunked because the reality is there. You know, you can watch the trailer and have all these ideas about what is coming, but when the movie comes and the fullness of the story is revealed, all the theories fade away and suddenly the trailer makes sense. And so after you've seen the film, you can go back and watch the trailer again, which is, again, another weird thing that I do. Go back and watch the trailer and see, ah, oh, that's what they meant by that you know, little scene. And, oh, that's how that sentence fits into the context of the whole movie. Well, when it comes to understanding Jesus Christ, it's kind of like he's coming in and he's the movie. The whole Old Testament is this trailer. It's been giving this idea of this promise of this person who is coming, this future king, this future ruler, this future plan of God that all will be made well and everything will be made right again and God's people will be brought together from all the ends of the earth and this, this incredible vision, but you're not left with the actual substance of it. And Jesus arrives on the scene and all is revealed. And Jesus comes and when he reveals the, the plan of God from old, he also outlines in this passage one of the more mysterious parts is what is the function of the Old Testament as it relates to the coming of the Messiah or the coming king, the anticipated one. And so as we are thinking about, you know, how does this all fit together? How does the Old Testament fit in with the New Testament? What is, you know, what is the place of the law in the life of a Christian? And we're going to find answers to that today. You may have had conversations with people who will say, well, you know, Christians are so arbitrary in how they come up with their ethical theories. Look at this. There's one verse that talks about don't eat stone, uh, shellfish and the next verse that says, you know, stone homosexuals. You guys are so pick and choose. How does this all work? And it's a fair criticism. If you read through the Old Testament without seeing the full picture, you kind of don't get the reality of the story. It's like people debating about the trailers of the film without actually watching it. 
Today's passage is sort of the reveal all, where Jesus comes and explains everything that's sort of been going on in the past and then is going to give us the vision for the future. And so this passage fits into the key for the rest of the whole Sermon on the Mount because if we don't understand this, we won't understand all that's coming afterwards. Jesus here is going to outline what's the relationship between himself and the Old Testament or the trailer without trying to denigrate (laughs) the Old Testament. What's the movie all about? And so to explore this kind of, it's a little bit complex, but to explore this, I've just got two points for today. Point number one, Christ and the law. And point number two, the Christian and the law. And as we read it through, this really one main point to kind of tie it all together that I think Jesus is trying to teach his followers then and now. Followers of Jesus follow the fulfilled law. Followers of Jesus follow the fulfilled law. If you're a little bit confused, don't worry. It's all going to make sense, I hope. (laughs) If not, then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is ruined. Um, That's fun. Okay, point number one, Christ and the law. Point number one, Christ and the law. You see, Jesus arriving on the scene is a bit of a problem for the people of his day and age. You see, Jesus doesn't arrive in you know, this vacuum where there's nothing else going on. Jesus arrives in the middle of a story. It's the story of God's people, um, the story of God's people who are now back in God's land. And the, the people who are back in God's land have once been kicked out of God's land because they were disobedient. They actually disobeyed the law, which is you know, the first five books of the Bible, the covenant that God made with Israel. And so in the land now that the people of God are are trying to remain faithful to the laws of God. They really want to be righteous before God because they don't want to be kicked out again. They want to actually bring the Messiah back down. They want to have this ruling and reigning in Israel. And so this group of people rose up in the, in the area called Pharisees. And these were extremely strict Jews who wanted to follow every letter of the Old Testament and obey every single command and stipulation to the nth degree so that they could be righteous before God so that they wouldn't incur judgment from God like their forefathers had. Yet Jesus arrives on the scene and he doesn't at all look like these religious leaders. He doesn't act like these religious leaders. He doesn't give the same rules and ideas and laws as these religious leaders. In fact, he breaks some of them. He goes around and does things that they say are unrighteous and illegal. He heals people on the Sabbath. He forgives people's sins based on his authority and his alone. He goes around and plucks grain on the Sabbath and eats. And he he kind of breaks all their stereotypes of what a righteous and good and moral person would do, let alone a teacher would do. And so there's a problem for the people. They're looking at Jesus and his life and his miracles and his teaching and his authority, and they're seeing a really powerful person, but by the definition of the Pharisees, an unrighteous person. What do we do? So you can imagine them thinking, all right, Jesus has come and maybe he's going to get rid of the law. He's going to get rid of all these Old Testament stipulations because he's not doing them anymore. He's not doing them like the Pharisees were. But it's not just a problem for them, it's a problem now for us. See, what do we do with all of what was written before Jesus came? Is it just sort of like a trailer of a movie that you don't go back and watch anymore? Does it have any relevance to our life? 
In fact, in the second century, there was a heretic named Marcion who really didn't like the Old Testament, and so he just deleted it. You know, he didn't have word processes back then, but he tore it out of all the scripts, and he went through all the New Testament and actually deleted all the words where there was any quotation of the Old Testament. He only wanted the New Testament. He just wanted Jesus and nothing else. He even changed the wording of some of these things to say the exact opposite so he could get rid of the Old Testament. And that's effectively how some of us can treat the Old Testament today. We kind of New Testament Christians or red-letter Christians. Oh, I only want to hear about Jesus. I don't need these old laws and old stories. They're just sort of for the people back then, but they're not for us now. But the role of the law is not just an academic theological problem, although this is one of the most hotly debated passages in all of theology. It's actually a passage which has eternal consequence for us. You see, your eternal hope and future depends on how you relate to God as described in His Word. You see, God has spoken to His people and told them exactly who they are and exactly what they're meant to do. You read through and you go through the law and there's something like 248 you know, negative things they're not meant to do and 350 positive things they're meant to do. Are you meant to do them? If this is what is righteousness before God and you're not doing them, then you are unrighteous before a holy God and your eternal future is put into the balance. You see, if we get this law wrong and how we relate to it as Christians, our whole eternal life is on the balance. We will not be righteous in God's sight. We will not inherit the kingdom. So then that leads us to this question. How does Jesus view the law and the prophets, which is his shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament? What is Jesus' perspective on the trailer as the movie is now coming into its full view? Let's read verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 18 again. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's rebuking perhaps what was sentiment in the crowd as he delivers this sermon. No, no, no. I'm not here to get rid of, I'm not tearing pages out of the Old Testament. That's not what I'm here to do. That word abolish means to nullify or to repeal or to make it, um, you know, have no value anymore, to render it invalid. I'm not here to get rid of the whole Old Testament. Instead, I'm here to do something completely different. Instead of abolishing, undoing and getting rid of, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament. I'm not here to abolish, I'm here to fulfill it. And then he even intensifies it even further in verse 18. He says, you know, not an iota, uh, not a dot will pass away. That means the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, a yoda, none of them can be taken out of the Old Testament. And not even the smallest punctuation mark in the Hebrew, you know, um, in the alphabet can be taken out of the law. God's word is God's word. We cannot tamper with it. We cannot touch it. Jesus has the highest possible view of old testament scripture it endures it stands when everything else falls away 
And the only thing that will bring it into the end of itself is the end of the heavens and the earth, which is sort of like a, a poetic way of saying it's never going to end, right? Because, you know, the heavens and earth are pretty stable. Tomorrow you can probably expect to walk um, and, and, and have sky above you. That's what Jesus is saying. This is never going to end. So I'm not here to get rid of the Scriptures, nor am I simply here to obey them. I'm here to fulfill them. So what does that actually mean? Because understanding this unlocks the whole of the Bible and enriches it for us. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Well, a good way of kind of looking at this is when you look through the whole Old Testament, it's like it's in black and white. Okay, it's sort of like the trailer. You don't have the full picture. But Jesus is saying, by coming onto the scene as God's eternal son, the promised savior, he's turning it all into color. So it goes from black and white, the Old Testament, Jesus arrives and suddenly it's in color. All the details have been filled in, all the kind of things you're like, what is that? Is that a person or there? And then suddenly it's in color and you can see it in full scope and detail. When you're looking at the moral laws, you know, the Ten Commandments or the sacrificial laws and the, the killing of goats and pigeons and turtle doves or the civic laws and the rules about all the family and, and, and boundary lines and what type of clothing to wear and the fact that you can't mix two different types of, you know, you know cotton and you can't have polyester and things like that. How does that all work? Well, that's sort of in black and white. But Jesus is here to turn it into color from 2D to sort of 3D from shadow to reality. You see, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament Scriptures was to lead the people of God to God. The whole thing was written to lead God's people to Himself so that they could properly relate to Him, so that they wouldn't sin against a holy God, so that they wouldn't offend Him or provoke Him or break covenant with Him. And so the Scriptures are to lead them to God and that means that they're actually to lead us to Jesus. You see, all the, all the laws, all the stories, all the kings, all the wisdom literature, all the prophecies are edging forward story by story, verse by verse, year by year, to when the Messiah will come. And in His coming, in the coming of Jesus Christ, they find their rest, their goal, their end. See, once Jesus arrives, all that's written in the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, have found their destination. He's the kind of the skeleton key that unlocks all the doors. And so instead of being abolished and going, well, Jesus is here, we don't need the Old Testament anymore, he fulfills them. He actually completes their story by becoming you know, the perfect righteous man that they were expecting, the perfect sacrifice that they needed for their sins, you know, the perfect citizen in the, in the citizen of Israel, the perfect king when all the kings failed, the perfect prophet when all the prophets weren't even listened to. Jesus fulfills and comes as the climax to all the stories. And so when we look at Jesus, we actually totally transform the way that we read the Old Testament and the way that we read the law. We have to. As followers of Jesus, we have to read the Old Testament completely differently now. It's been transformed. It's sort of like, um, it's a weird analogy, but it's sort of like in pregnancy, you know, you know there's a baby in there uh, and you kind of, you talk to the baby and you, you stroke the tummy and um, you kind of love the baby, but you kind of can't get to the baby 
And then once the baby's born, you, you hang out with the baby. You don't kind of play with the tummy anymore. <laughs> the, It'd be weird to kind of go, oh, hello, you know, hanging out with the tummy. Uh, that, that's what it would be like in Jesus' time for the people to stop looking to Jesus and go back to the law. The baby is here, <laughs> baby Jesus, King Jesus is here. And so the law still has its place, but its place was to bring forth him. And so for the followers who are all crowding in, who live their life every week going to synagogue, hearing about the law, hearing about what they need to do to be pure, hearing what they need to do to be right with God, Jesus is saying a completely outrageous thing. He's saying, I am here. It was all pointing to me. I fulfill it. I'm <laughs> the secret surprise that was in there all the time. R.T. France kind of explains it like this. On this understanding, the authority of the law and the prophets is not abolished. They remain the authoritative word of God. But their role will no longer be the same. Now that what they pointed to, forward to has come, it will be for Jesus' followers to discern in the light of his teaching and practice what is now the right way to apply those texts in the new situation which his coming has created. From now on, it will be the authoritative teaching of Jesus which must, must govern his disciples' understanding and practical application of the law. We've probably, to some degree, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard this, understood this, know this intuitively, <laughs> but this would have been rocking their world. For, for a man to come in and say, it all makes sense only because of me. All of it. I fulfill the law. You know, you've got all the Pharisees and the scribes doing their very best to live as righteously as they possibly can. And Jesus is here saying, I fulfill it. Look, to understand the whole Old Testament, you need to understand me. It's, it's crazy. So what do we do now with all the food laws and civil laws and stonings and the guides about what not to do with mold? And even though they might have some relevance to some friends in our church... What do we do with all these kind of weird and archaic kind of things in the Bible? Don't they just have no meaning anymore? Well, again, R.T. France helps us out. He says, If in the process it may appear that certain elements of the law are in fact for all practical purposes abolished, this will be attributable not to the loss of their status as the Word of God, but to their changed role in the era of fulfillment, in which it is Jesus, the fulfiller of, rather than the law which pointed forward to him, who is the ultimate authority. So what that's saying is that you take all those laws, and as we read the Bible, we take them all the way through to Jesus Christ, this man who stands on a hill with a couple of thousand people around him, and they only now make full sense for us after Jesus through him. So when we're confused by any part of the Old Testament law, well, we've got to take it all the way through to Jesus. And then look at it and then go back from there to actually understand its place. And I'm not going to explain how all of that works. And it is really difficult. Like, which, do we obey the food laws or not? Do we obey the dress laws or not? Do we obey the Sabbath laws or not? The, the moral laws, which ones? How does it all work? For now, all we need to know is that Jesus is the key that unlocks it all. He's the one that it was pointing it all to. And he's the one that fulfills it all perfectly. So if we want to know how to understand the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, um, 
we don't just not read it or look at it anymore because it's, like, oh, it's too complex. <laughs> no, in light of Jesus, we read it in light of him. We look back and we see it through the lens of Christ. Sort of like you got your, you know, you take a photo, you got Instagram filters and changes, and you, you know, some people have got their own like Instagram profile and they always use the same filter to kind of have a curated, consistent outlook on their life so that they have a very good looking life, right? Well, as you read through the Old Testament, now what you need to do is slap the cross of Jesus Christ filter on it. And as you read through every text, you're looking and you're trying to filter it through the cross. So that every picture that you see in every king and every prophet and every law and every Israelite, you're looking, where does Jesus, how does this fit in with Jesus? How does this predict Jesus? How does this, you know, resemble Jesus? It's all about Jesus. And in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to explain in some ways exactly how this plays out. Jesus is going to envision a new law a new way of being an Israelite that depends on following his word and his teaching. And that's where Jesus' authority comes in. He's saying, to be a true follower of God now, listen to my words, read my lips, <laughs> follow my actions, and me and myself alone. And that will be the only way to make sense of it all. So, Point number one, Christ came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. That's the first thing he's trying to say. Every single little bit is the word of God. Every single little bit matters. And every single little bit is fulfilled in him. Therefore, followers of Jesus follow the fulfilled law. That leads us, though, to point number two. What does that mean for us? So that's kind of like the, the theoretical, like big picture it's kind of hard to get part, but what does that mean for us? What's our relation practically to the law? Point number two, the Christian and the law, or the follower of Jesus and the law of God. Jesus moves in verses 19 to 20 to confront two dangerous errors that his new disciples face and that we still face today in regard to how we view the law of God how we view not just you know, the Old Testament laws, but all the laws that Jesus is about to proclaim. Error number one. Error number one is minimizing the law. Error number one, the dangers that we face. You've got the crowds here, and he wants to warn them the error and the danger of minimizing the law. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, as I was studying this, you kind of think like, no, but you just said it's fulfilled in you, so that doesn't it mean now like we don't have to do it? Because you did it. You fulfilled it. <laughs> You're here. You've done it. Great. Now we can just move on. But Jesus immediately says, therefore, since I'm authoritative, since I fulfilled it, since every single part is the word of God, therefore you must do it. And you must do not just some of it, even the least and the most minute and the most insignificantly seeming parts, you must obey them. If you don't and you minimize the law, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, you might get in, but you are not approved. You are not celebrated. You, God is not applauding your actions. You see, we can have this temptation as grace 
Christians, Christians who know that God is gracious, know that God is merciful, know that God is kind and loving, and that we lean so far into that that we minimize the expectations God has for us. Jesus says, do not loose or untie or set aside even the least of these commandments. We can't be the ones that say, oh, that's just the Old Testament. That's not applicable anymore. It's not that simple. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 says this, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, we need to remember that the law, even though it's in some parts been superseded by Christ, some parts have faded away that we don't have to follow anymore, the law represents the very heart of God for his people. The law is God's word, spoken from the mind of God to his people. And so we should be very, very slow to dismiss or you know, disobey any single part of it, thinking that, oh, Jesus has fulfilled it, we can just move on. What we have to do now is find out how to obey this particular part of the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And Jesus is going to give six major examples of that in verses 21 to 48. You know, the section where he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Whoever looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus doesn't fulfill the law and then make it easier. Jesus fulfills the law by living it out perfectly and then makes it even harder. Because what he does is he reveals that the point of the law was not just to set up all these rules so that people live right. It's so that people become like God himself. And so Jesus is going to take the law and make it ten times as hard. Jesus is going to take every single thing that the Pharisees thought led to righteousness and make it even harder to do. Therefore, we can't relax or diminish or downplay the life of obedience as a Christian. There are no points for being edgy and sinful and saying, I'm just enjoying grace, man. No, um, God is very concerned with our righteousness and our holiness. Remember the Beatitudes. Those who are pure in heart will see God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. So that's error number one, minimizing the law kind of not teaching the least parts, not living out the least parts. But error number two kind of flips to the other side, and it's in verse 20, misinterpreting the law. Error number two is misinterpreting the law. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now Jesus is saying that instead of relaxing the law or abolishing the law, you are to be so obedient to it that your righteousness exceeds even the most righteous person you could ever conceive of living. The Pharisees and the scribes were such people. They lived a life of scrupulous you know, attempt to not transgress any single one of those commands. There are 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments in the Old Testament law. And these Pharisees and the scribes, they created rules upon rules 
of finding ways to obey those laws and to make sure even in the smallest detail you hadn't disobeyed it. For instance, on the Sabbath, you could write one singular letter and that wasn't considered work. But if you wrote two letters, that was work. (laughs) I don't know how. You could write things on sand but not on paper. They were trying to find any particular way, the most perfect way to not break the law of God. You couldn't walk more than a thousand steps. Uh, You couldn't heal on the Sabbath, you know, all these type of things. You could only put like a Band-Aid on something. You couldn't put any ointment on it. That was the kind of, because they were afraid that they would break the law of God by working on the Sabbath. So they created all these extra rules to be even more righteous. But what Jesus is saying is that these guys have actually misinterpreted the law. Notice how he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people in all of Israel. The condition for entering the kingdom of heaven is being more righteous than them. Therefore, the scribes and the Pharisees aren't entering the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees wasn't righteous enough. They read the law, They wanted to obey the law, but they never could get there. They never actually understood it in its entirety or in its fullness. And so they are excluded from the kingdom of God. They misinterpreted the whole point of the law. Let me ask you this. Are you someone who is trying really hard to please God? You're kind of working really hard to make sure you come to church and do the right things and present yourself well and, you know, make sure that you're kind of working it out and you're not saying swear words and you're not watching the wrong thing. You're kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm living a good life and you're trying to be helpful and holy. All those things may be good, but the potential is, is that you might be completely missing the point, just like the Pharisees. Doing all those particular things, though in and of themselves might be the right thing to do, those things will not help you enter the kingdom of heaven. Because I guarantee you the scribes and the Pharisees were doing it better than you are. I know you. (laughs) Jesus takes it to the next level. Verse 48, at the end of this section, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what does Jesus mean that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is actually looking for an inside-out form of righteousness, not an outside-in righteousness. Jesus is looking for an inside-out form of righteousness, one that comes from the heart and works its way out into the life, rather than one that is a righteousness by external attitudes, but the heart remains far from God. John Stott says it like this, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than in degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230, No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, being a righteousness of the heart. Only those who go far beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees will be true subjects of God's kingdom. 
those who can do no more than simply keep the rules, however conscientiously, haven't even started as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. You see, the Pharisees were all about the outside appearance, getting it right so everyone could see, tithing publicly so everyone, ah, look how much they gave, wearing the right clothes, doing the right things, fitting in, but they didn't actually love God in their heart. They didn't actually weep or feel mournful over their sin. It can be the same for us. At times we can hate getting caught for sinning more than we hate actually sinning itself. But Jesus is looking at his followers and saying, your righteousness must be an inside-out form of righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of people who worship and love God, who hate sin, even if they never get caught doing it. They don't just um, do good, they love doing good because they love God. This type of righteousness is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, that is the days of judgment in the exile, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Error number one is to minimize the law. Ah, It doesn't really matter anymore. We can just live free, grace. Error number two is to misinterpret the law. It's to look at the law and go, oh my goodness, I need to do everything. I've got to clean up my life. I've got to get it all together so I can present myself to God and then he'll let me into the kingdom of heaven. So then that leads us to this final question. How do we become righteous before God? The point of the law was to bring God's people holy to himself because they're sinful, they can't be with him. So how do we become righteous before God? Well, Jesus has come to teach them through upping the ante as these followers, as we all look in. And his point is this, you can't. You cannot do it. You cannot be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot have an inside-out righteousness on your own. You cannot obey the laws of God. You cannot be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. You can't do it. And so as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, every time it comes, there's no good news in it. It's basically just do this or else you're out. Do this or else you're out. Do this or else you're out. And the whole point is those who are affected by God moving in them are meant to say, I can't do it, Jesus. (laughs) I'm out. Save me. And that leads us to the real point of the law. The point of the law is not just to prohibit sin, which it is. It's not just to instruct us on how to live a good life. The point of the law is actually there to condemn us. It's to lead us to a point of repentance, that we hate the sin within us, and we despair knowing that if we are compared to a holy God, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the point of the law is to lead us to Jesus. Because he is the one that fulfills the law. He is that perfect righteous man who never looked with lust upon a woman, who never flared up in anger to protect his status or his privilege. He's the one who swore and you know, never had to make an oath because his word was his word. 
He lived a perfectly righteous life. He, he comes as the perfect sacrificial offering, the lamb that was slain. He fulfills the law. And that is the good news of the gospel. The good news is Jesus is here. And so Jesus is saying to his followers at the beginning, before the Sermon on the Mount, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The only way we can get in, the only way to rightly interpret the law of God is to repent for how far we fall short of it and to come to Jesus for forgiveness of our sins. If we hold on to any grab bag of our own little righteous deeds that get us any merit, we've misunderstood the whole thing. If we want to minimize the law to make it easier so we don't feel as bad about ourselves, oh, you only have to get six out of ten in the Ten Commandments list. We're misinterpreting the law. We're in danger. No, the only way forward is to repent of your sins and follow Jesus. Because he goes from this sermon on a mount, you know, obviously to the mount of crucifixion. And on that mount, all of our failings and all of our secret, private sins, all the ones that no one could ever know, all the sins of those Pharisees who looked really righteous to everyone else, but their hearts were wicked, all of them were paid for on the cross for anyone who trusts in Christ. You see, followers of Jesus follow the fulfilled law, which means we come to Christ and repent. We can't make it. But then, once we've been forgiven of our sins, we take all the law and the prophets and the Sermon on the Mount, and then we ask God, help me to live this out. How can I perfectly reflect your character? How can I live in your kingdom, your way, for your glory? Change me from the inside out. Write your law on my heart. Give me your spirit so that I can actually do this. That's the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's upside down. <laughs> it's inside out. And praise God for his grace to us in Christ. Otherwise, we would be shut out of the kingdom of heaven. We'd be looking in like Lazarus from the pit, watching, you know, the, experiencing torment and seeing that we are far off and can never bridge the gap. So in this passage, Jesus is clarifying. No, no, no. The law is not abolished. I fulfilled it. Every single part makes sense only now because of me. And if you want to be a follower of me, then you need to repent because you do not measure up. You must be more righteous even than those Pharisees. And if you're truly listening and you're meant to be like, I can't do it, which leads you to Christ, the fulfillment of the law. And then it leads you to follow it because your heart's changed. And once you become a Christian, you experience this beautiful thing where you, ha you have, instead of having this outward righteousness, you want an inward one. You want to be different. Not, you don't want to lust. You don't want to lie. You don't want to be you know, angry and, and bitter and vile towards people. You want to be like your king, the one who fulfilled it for you. As you watch the trailer, you can never really understand what the movie's going to be about. Sometimes you watch a trailer and you think, I know, I know. I don't even need to watch the movie anymore because the trailer just told me everything. But if you go ahead and watch the rest of the movie, oftentimes you'd be mistaken. You think you knew it all, but actually the reality is much different. 
And so it was for the people in Jesus' time. They thought they knew. They thought they understood. They thought they got it right. But when Jesus came, he changed everything. And so let's be students of the word. Let's lean in and be followers of Jesus who follow the fulfilled law. Let's not diminish the least part of it, but seek to be holy and righteous, not for our own glory, but for the glory of the King, as we're salt and light in the world, displaying His goodness into a broken and depraved generation. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to thank you that you are a gracious God. That even though we could never be righteous enough, we could never make sense of it all, we could never fulfill all your commands, instead of shutting us all out for all eternity, you made a way through your son Jesus. You provided the sacrifice. You provided the perfect life that we could never live. And so, Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you help us to be followers of your law, to not relax the least of your commands, to understand and to use our minds to search the Scriptures and understand how they're fulfilled in Christ and how they apply to us today? God, this is a hard text. It's, it's hard to know how to live for you in this confusing world. And so we just ask for your Spirit to guide us, to help us, to lead us. Lord, we want to be different. We want to shine like stars. We want to be salt in the earth, but we can't do it alone. So we plead with you, change us from the inside out and make us a community which spurs one another on to grace-motivated obedience. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.